WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA, the podcast where two best friends talk about comics with the people who make them. I'm Matt Lazowitz, and uh, my co-host Dan Grote is running a bit behind, but will be joining us shortly along with this week's guest, who is here. Uh, he's the creator of White Ash and the spin-off Glarion, uh, recently fully funded on Kickstarter, and the co-publisher of Scout Comics, Charlie Stickney. Welcome, Charlie. Hey, how's it going tonight? Oh, it's 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 going. Yeah, it's- yeah. I mean. <laughs> I, I feel like that's been like the standard response for uh, the last like year and a half. You know, yeah. if it's going, it's going, yeah. which is uh, uh, which is good. I'll, I'll better take, than not. Exactly. Obviously, I'll take it over the opposite. Uh, so we'll we'll start with the usual first time guest question. Uh, what are some of the first comics you remember reading? First comics I remember reading. Um, so I, I would say it's, it's a couple of things. It's uh, some Wonder Woman comics from the um, probably like late 70s, early 80s. Uh, because my parents, when we used to go on trips, would pick up those two or three packs from uh, places like Bradley's. So there was a two part um, from uh, which, which was featuring, um, I think, some Amazon that was trying to take Diana's crown. So like that was one of the early ones. There was a Marvel Tales team up with uh, Spider-Man and Wonder Man. Uh, that was one of the earliest ones that I had. And, uh, you know, Wonder Man really kind of never hit big, I don't think. At least maybe maybe recently, but at least when I was like in my hardcore collecting phase, it, it was something that I had from like my 70s comic that was all crumpled up in a box um so like those and then there's a couple of brave and the bolds from around the same time which were probably all from that same trip which i'm guessing was say circa like 1979 1980 do you remember who the team up was in brave and the bolds i'm always curious so there were there were there was one with a phantom stranger and uh there was something where he was doing some kind of uh i know the cover is like he's got like a voodoo doll or, or, some, or no, they were, they, were, they were fighting someone with a, with a voodoo doll. I guess the Phantom Stranger didn't have it, but he and Batman were fighting someone who was using a voodoo, voodoo doll. And there was also one with the Unknown Soldier right around that mm-hmm. same time. So like that, that was the two-pack there. It was like um, Phantom Stranger and the Unknown Soldier. I have them somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I, I, those Brave and the Bolds, there's some wild stuff. I, I love that era of Brave and the Bolds. And I feel like it was always Jim Aprail, right? Yeah. Like he seemed to like he he seemed to draw from like the late 1970s through the early 1990s, and pretty much every Batman story, right? Like oh, it yeah. had to be Jim. Yeah, he he was still working on and off on the Bat books through the late 90s. Like he just yeah. never, and he's he's the prototypical batman artist of that era i mean you've got flashier you know your neil adams is your frank millers but when it comes to a, a solid dependable bat artist aparo is right up there yeah yeah i i think uh, he also did like lonely place of dying too right i think he yep. did that he did whole sequence Guessing. and uh which was really what i came came back to batman i feel like uh those dc events were great for bringing people to the titles and then you'd stay on for a while so he was the regular artist on either batman or detective for uh, a while for quite a while there because he was he did you know death in the family lonely place of dying half of nightfall right and that's when he stopped being a regular artist was batman 500 was his last as the regular artist on batman yeah we're getting into my other podcast which is the batman podcast which people aren't (laughs) here for that People can right, right, right. Like, like, was it was Batman five hundred? I'm now thinking like that. Oh God, who, who, who did was the art? Did the art on Batman five hundred? It was Aparo um, on the first half and Mike Manley on the back Mike half. Manley. Look at you, impressive. Yeah, I, like, I just covered that book on my Batman podcast like, like gotcha. a few weeks ago. Gotcha. So that 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 one's fresh in the old the old noodle. Not not that I probably couldn't have done it without that. Right, your right, photographic right. memory and obsession with Batman is a dangerous drug. Uh, well, I, yeah, like I, I do, I do think. I mean, and obviously, you know, as you said, I mean, we're we're here to chat about comics and chat about me some some more as well. But I, I do feel like that was um, an interesting era 
of Batman where it was going from like the one to two, like it was Detective and Batman. And then they started doing um, all the different titles. And I remember there was a release with the, like the multiple cover color covers. Like there was the green color. What, what was it? Was that what was Legends, that? Legends of the Legends of the Dark Knight? The four green, yellow, pink, and orange. Yes, yes. So like that's you're hitting in my happy spot right now in terms of like my collecting uh, days. Good times. That was right when I started collecting. That was yeah. right around Batman '89 was the thing that okay. kind of got me yeah. in and hasn't haven't been out since. God help me. <laughs> Work at comic book shop throughout high school and college. You're, you're kind of stuck. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I I interned at Marvel oh. when I was in uh, college, and uh, that's also a good gateway drug because as an intern back then, they didn't pay you, except they would give you one of every comic that was coming out that month. Plus, they had an exchange program with Image, and they had an exchange program, I think at the time, with Valiant. So you were getting just like this gigantic bundle that you would take home every week of about 100, 150 comics, which was nice. Yeah, that that could be a lot worse. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But we're getting off topic. Yeah, Uh, yeah. Uh, um, but but let's start happy to talk at any time about comics yeah well, that's what we do and as we say yeah. tangents welcome uh, that's but, right. but uh, we want to start with uh, some belated congratulations uh, you wrapped a campaign this summer for Glarian Glarian? Yes. Glarian uh, a spinoff of, of your uh, Scout Comics series White Ash and uh, I'll quote from the update in addition to being our most backed campaign ever, Glarian 1-2 is one of the most backed single-issue non-trade comics that has ever been on Kickstarter. So, congratulations. Thank uh, you. Thank you. Uh, Thank you so much. I assume you have a room in your abode that is basically just an Amazon fulfillment warehouse for Kickstarters at this point? I I, I, I actually have a storage facility. <laughs> ah, that'll do. <laughs> where, where all the pallets go to at this point. Because, um, yeah, I mean, I, Kickstarter is a wonderful wonderful marketplace i mean and that's what i look at it as it's a marketplace that's kind of unique to itself um and you have to kind of have to separate it from the direct market um which which followed two different very very different behaviors and different books do a book that can do well in the direct market you can do great on kickstarter and a book that, that can do great on kickstarter could do terribly in the direct market sometimes there's no correlation um i kind of look at it like the way that people look at um you know, international and domestic sales of a film. They're very different markets and things perform differently in each. And you have to understand the idiosyncrasies for each market to know how to best support your books there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, yeah. So, but on Kickstarter, uh, Glarian is a top 10 brand. White Ash is a top 10 brand, which is a wonderful thing to be able to say versus the direct market where it's hard to be a top 10 brand if you're not Batman, uh, you know, spider-man or you know two or three image comics depending on the month and look here's dan hey dan hey dan how are you i was gonna try and sneak in quietly <laughs> no 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 i already said that you know you'd be joining us shortly so here you are uh, <laughs> but uh so i'm curious from that what makes a book a kickstarter book what what is there a way that you can tell from a looking at a project like oh this one's gonna be a kickstarter hit well so i i do think that different types of books um do well on kickstarter that wouldn't do as well in the direct market like fantasy does really well on kickstarter fantasy does okay in the direct market um books that have specific bents um if if it's a lgbtq book if it's a um a poc book like th- those books can find an audience because Kickstarter is a place where people who sometimes don't feel represented in the comic book shop can go to find other books. So if, if you're, if your deal is you like um, create your own stories, but you don't like cape books, I think people, that's the kind of crowd that often goes to Kickstarter. Or if you, you live in an area where there's no comic book shop that that's that close to you, you know, then you're used to buying everything online anyway. So this becomes another online marketplace. So I feel like that's what, Kickstarter cultivates, and you see a lot of um, creators who are able to get their start there. But then it's also the same way that um, you know, if a creator's built a brand, at, say at Marvel or DC, and then they go to Image, you know, they're able to sort of carry that that um, name recognition to be able to launch a creator-owned title and make a lot of money there. 
the same thing can be said to, you know, for Kickstarter, like um, when um, Scott Snyder went there, he did very well. You know, he would do very well probably wherever he went. But, you know, he went to Kickstarter and on Kickstarter, he and whatever his team is are pulling in roughly 92% of all the revenue versus at Image or other places, you know, the profit sharing and split. You know, it's your own deal. So um, in terms of what books do well there, um, fantasy books um, and, and books that have a specific audience built in. After 11 campaigns, you know, do you feel like you're, you're an expert at it now or are there things that you're, you're still learning? Well, it's, it's an evolving marketplace. Um, I, I would say I'm very knowledgeable about how, how it functions. Um, but, but what, what sells on Kickstarter is a constantly changing, um, beast that you kind of need to figure out because there's new people coming to the platform. Things become hot, just like they do in the direct market. Variant covers are doing really well right now on Kickstarter where that wasn't as much of a thing in the past. Um, so, so yeah, like there's, there's, there's ebbs and flows to each marketplace and you kind of have to stay on top of that. And, um, I'm always looking to see what campaigns are doing well and what pieces I can take and incorporate into um, my own. I, I think like the campaigns that are doing really, really well um, are things that have become a brand and not just a brand, but a brand that people feel like they're part of. Um, because I think it's, you know, comic book fans are loyal inherently. Like, I think, I think that's part of like the fandom, especially because early on, at least for, for those of us who've been collecting for over 20 or 30 years, there was a time when it wasn't a mainstream thing to be into this kind of pop culture. So it was kind of a badge that you wore and it was something that was special to you. I think that same thing holds for the Kickstarter marketplace, but their creators have a real bond with their audience that you don't have in the direct market. Um, like, like in the direct market, when I sell a book, I don't know who bought it. You know, if, if you're going through Diamond, they're not even going to tell you what stores bought. You just have a sense of like how many it sold. Um, when I sell a book on Kickstarter, I've to this point fulfilled everything myself. So I see those names that come back. I have a sense of who those people are. And when they come up to me at a comic book convention, and this is like, I've had way more people who are Kickstarter backers come find me at places like San Diego Comic-Con than I ever had that, you know, from the Scout Comics release. So even, you know, like, even though that was a, in a sense, a broader release, the people who come find me are the people who've made a connection with me on Kickstarter. Has it become easier to to launch and manage and fulfill these campaigns over time? Like the fan base is there, it's built in, and there's a there's like a self-sustaining sort of snowballing aspect to things. I, for, for me, there is. I mean, mm -hmm. like I, I'll go on record and say um, it's a lot easier for me to launch a campaign on Kickstarter than it was when I started. Uh, mm -hmm. It's not necessarily the case for everyone. Um, but I know if it's a white ash or a glaring campaign, there are X number of backers that are going to show up, um, which is a wonderful place to be in as a creator. And it gives me a lot of luxury and freedom because if I know, for instance, say that the floor might be 900 backers coming to one of these projects, that means it's going to be, you know, tremendously successful at X level. Um, and, and so, and when you have that many people who show up over the first couple of days or the first week that just attracts more attention. It's, it's, you know, it's the, it's the rolling stone that, you know, it's just like just gathering momentum and people are like, what is that exciting thing? So, so for me, it's become a lot easier. I would say, you know, for Brian Polito, who does like the lady death campaigns for him at this point, it's plug and play. Um, I mean, you need to have the capital to be able to go out and, and, and put a product together and you need to have a fulfillment team. If you're him to be able to sort of handle that kind of, um, you know, uh, the amount of, of books that he needs to ship out. But um, yeah, once you start building a brand on the platform, it becomes a lot easier. Uh, people know who you are. And, and I, I don't know if I was saying this before you came in. At this point, like White Ash and, and Glarian, they're top 10 brands on the Kickstarter platform, which is a wonderful thing to be like in this particular market. Here we are. We're a known commodity. People, you know, people look at what we do to see how we do it. Um, and, you know, we get to help move the needle and to help other people. And that's for me, one of my favorite things is because we have such a following 
because we have such a presence in that community, I can help other creators in a way that even as a you know, co-publisher over at Scout, I can't because like the direct market doesn't listen to me the way the Kickstarter market listens to me. So it's, it's a really nice place to be able to, to be in. And I'm very lucky, but it's also something that I know that's been built on the backs of us creating a product that people love, working with an incredible team like Connor Hughes, Finn Cram, who's the colorist, Romania uh, Morinelli. I mean, like I, I work with amazing people and we've been delivering for the last three to four years on Kickstarter with regularity. So take us back to the, the, the very beginning. You know, what is the origin of White Ash? You know, when did you first conceive of this uh, sexy elf fantasy world? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I was just saying this earlier. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I have, um, I've worked in a lot of different mediums. Uh, I, I was originally looking to be a comic book writer. Um, but I was also a film major in college, in college, and then I got a job offer out in LA. And so I ended up work, moving to Los Angeles. I worked in animation, independent film, feature film for years. Um, but the industry started changing and it really became more of a television driven industry. Mm -hmm. And, um, it became harder and harder to get a job unless you were someone with a huge name because, you know, at least in feature film, because everything was going to the big blockbuster sort of model and and now the interesting things the stories that were being told at least in my mind were mostly in tv where i hadn't really kind of built up that same presence so around this time i was um you know i was actually i was watching the hobbit and i think the hobbit is a great example of both the good and bad of cinema and you know like there's a lot in it that's great there's a lot in it that's maybe overexpanded you know, like I get the impetus behind it to try to make a, uh, you know, a trilogy, but maybe they should have just done two films mm -hmm. or something. So they had all these ideas they were trying to incorporate into this movie. And one of the things that sort of struck me in the middle of watching this um, was the elf dwarf sort of love triangle that they kind of explored a little bit. Um, but I knew I wasn't completely engaged because I started thinking about that particular dynamic rather than watching the movie. And so I'm sitting there in that movie thinking, yeah, that's kind of interesting. Um, you know, I haven't seen a lot of that in, uh, I mean, I know there's plenty of literature about that, but there's not a lot of uh, media about that. What if it was a, a TV show? You know, what if it was a modern day TV show? Oh God, that must've been done like a hundred times. And then I couldn't think about any modern fantasies that were taking place that I had seen sort of in that realm. Um, and so then I started like exploring it in my head, like what would a TV show version of like of this this thing, this elf dwarf forbidden romance thing be uh, set modern day. And then from there, I started thinking about a lot. And I said, you know what, this would make a better comic book. And maybe now is my time to kind of go back to the medium that I love. And then as someone who's worked in all these different things, I always think about things like what's the film version? What's the comic book version? What's the TV version? Uh, because they're very different. And pacing is different from a film to a comic. And so many people come from um, film or television. They're like, I'm just going to adapt this to turn it into a piece of IP to sell it. And, you know, I think the average comic book fan sees through that very quickly because it's not, it's not good. Right. <laughs> it's like, so the, the, the end goal is not the comic book. The end goal is to take the comic book and do something else with it. Um, so, so for me, like it was about, thinking what's the version of of this which you know became white ash would be a great comic so then then i started reinvesting myself in the comic book marketplace and i was looking at the numbers of the direct market and i was like if i take it to image you know how many books at image with people who don't have names in the comic book industry will last past like three issues mm -hmm. and it's almost none because the numbers fall off so quickly after about three issues in, you can't afford to make your comic book. Um, and it's the same thing everywhere. Unless, unless you're Brian K. Vaughn where you're launching your new title somewhere, you know, the retailers are not going to order more than, you know, the first four or five, even if it's great, because they don't know if you have a fan base built in, you know, et cetera, et cetera, which I understand. Um, so it's like running all the numbers in my head and knowing what kind of return I was like, okay, just to be able to sustain the book, I need to be selling anywhere from 8,000 to eight to 10,000 copies an issue. How many books in the direct market are doing that past number one? And I was like, oh my God, it's almost nothing, right? Like, it's like, 
if it's not based on IP like um, Predator or Aliens or Power Rangers, and it's not Brian K. Vaughn, if it's not Gail Simone, like how many books? And it's like one or two a month that you see that pop up in the 400 titles that are coming out that are creator owned that are hitting those numbers. Mm -hmm. So that's like a daunting prospect to go into that. And so that's what originally drove me to Kickstarter because originally I was going to go with a more traditional method of like, Hey, I'm going to do some, I'm going to pitch this around and, and see if a publisher wants to pick it up. But I didn't want to tell a story that was four issues long. Okay. I didn't want to tell something that even though that, you know, that's the advice. If anyone new is trying to break in, like I always tell them that and people say, start small, do a small story, do something that you can manage that you can produce. I'm like, so I have this 60 issue story that I'm going to do with some spinoffs and I'm going to tell a timeline that goes forward and goes back 3000 years. Like, like if anyone ever pitched that to me, I would say you are insane. Do not do that. You're going to make yourself broke. Um, but that's where I was. And like, that's, that's, I figured if I was going to come back to, you know, the comic book industry, I wanted to come back with the project that I felt that passionately about. Um, you know, that said, I've always been smart, like white ash is being told in arcs. So if we needed to stop after the second arc, we could. Um, thankfully, the audience continues to grow the more we do. So it looks like, you know, at least for now, I'm going to be able to start tell a really good piece of the story that I set out to tell. Um, but yeah, so like, I mean, like, you know, that was the origin creatively, but also the origin of like why I picked the path that I took it down. And it's, it's something that I think is very important for any new creator to think about is the actual numbers and economics of comics. And I think so many people look into the books of how do I write um, a script? How do I find an artist? And they never think about how do I pay for this? You know, how, 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 how can I sustain this? How can I build a brand? How can I build something that's going to grow beyond two issues in a comic book shop? You know, maybe it's just because I'm coming back from my son's back to school tonight, but I feel like, you know, younger listeners, uh, if you're out there, this is why you need the math. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I, I did a very, I mean, I, I'm fortunate because I come from a background where I've done a lot of, like I was a line producer on an animated series. So like that was his numbers spreadsheet, making sure mm -hmm. we have the budget to produce every single episode. You know, we've got different pieces of 12 episodes going at the same time. So like, so I have been in that part of things. I've worked in promotion and I've worked in creation. So like, so the, knowing how to finance, how to promote and how to create are all three very different, um, you know, skill sets. And just like from what I've done in the past, it, it made it very easy for me to sort of understand the scope of what I was attempting to do and how these different pieces would need to sort of function together. So uh, at what point did you sort of gather your, your people on this journey? You know, when did Connor enter the picture, uh, Finn, et cetera? Et cetera? So, so, um, so Connor and Finn, probably uh, early 2016, I, uh, I had the script and um, I was sort of dipping my toes back into the comic book world. And so I put out like an open call on all the sites, you know, looking for artists and I can pay and this is what I'm going to do. And if you ever do that and you say you can pay, you won't believe how many responses that you will get back to that. And um, so, so, so then I had like 300 artist resumes that I had to go through. Um, thankfully for me, uh, I both had a background in art and I had worked in animation. So one of my best friends is um, a storyboard director, animation director. So he, you know, after I narrowed it down to like the top 50, he was like going through the others and uh, he, he was like flipping. He was like, oh, this is pretty good. This, this, you know, the guy has proportion issues, et cetera, et cetera. And then he's like, who is this guy? I was like, I don't know, somebody named Connor Hughes. And he's like, he's like, he's like, I don't know who these other people are, but he's like, look at how sharp the storytelling is here. Look at how great the posing is here. He's like, just forget everybody else, focus on this guy. And um, Connor was one of those people who had just sort of fallen through the cracks where he had gone to the School of uh, Visual Design in New York, studied under uh, Angicelli, and like, you know, he, so he had this great pedigree, and he was one of the stars of his class, but he also had like that old New England work ethic where he's like, is this a real job? Is this what I should be setting out to do? And so then he got a job offer at the UN 
um, where they made him one of their in-house graphic designers. So like, like, so he got offered a real, real job um, with like a big salary and benefits working at the UN. And I feel like those are one of those things that's hard to walk away from, sure. but he still had that pull to be the comic book artist. And so when um, Mark Millar did his first talent search, Connor submitted to that. And he was one of the winners for the first, you know, the first book, but they paired him with a colorist who was not great. And his work kind of got lost then. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was kind of like going to give it up. And then he saw my post and he's like, ah, I'll try this, you know, worst case, you know, it doesn't work out. And yeah, and we've been partners now for, you know, six years, seven years. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, it's been great. Now, uh, you know, we, we mentioned, uh, or you mentioned the Hobbit already, but you know, what are some of your other, uh, fantasy touchstones, you know, across media? So across me, I mean, like I would start, you know, start with literature because I think that's where, where a lot of us started because the media when we were growing up was not great. Not like this golden age of content we live in right now, right? Um, <laughs> Billion dollar but, Amazon streaming series, yes. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I got, um, you know, I think we had the, um, the Captain America film, which I just tried to watch from like 1990. Like, just was like watching that online the other day. I was like, oh my God. I can't believe how bad this is. There's like there was the the Dolph Lundgren Punisher film that mm-hmm, I was excited mm-hmm. about. You know, like that was when Marvel only had like the VHS that came out in the supermarket. They didn't even yeah. go to the video store. Like, like it was like <laughs> bargain basement videos. You'd find the Marvel film. Um, so yeah, so like um, so yeah, for sure, Lord of the Rings was was something that I was a fan of as a kid. And that led me to uh, Terry Brooks. Uh, I don't know, you know, with like, um, uh, Zan- I mean, uh, with Short of Shannara and, um, you know, all of that. And his Magic Kingdom for sale was a great series. I don't know if you ever read that, but that was more grounded fantasy, which really spoke to me because it was about um, a-, a lawyer in his 40s who felt unfulfilled with life, who finds this advertisement where he can buy a magic castle, right? And so... He, he pays a million dollars for this magic castle and then gets stuck with, with basically one of those things where if you don't do your inspections, <laughs> you get what you pay for. And like, and that just sort of, you know, launched that adventure. But I love that sort of that, that contrast between, you know, grounded reality and high fantasy, um, which has always kind of stuck with me. And then it was also Piers Anthony, who was a, like a 1980s, like late 70s, 80s um, icon of fantasy that when I look back now, some of it's a little problematic because of the time it came from. Yeah, well, maybe more than a little problematic. But like, you know, the eyes I have now are very different than in a 13 to 14 year old boy who's reading fantasy. And, um, you know, there were not a lot of adults then to say this is this is problematic, but there's some great, great, you know, great nuggets in it. So like I would say like those were my, um, you know, big fantasy made by like my touchstones for, for fantasy mm-hmm. growing up. And, and then um, God, I, I feel like over the last 20 years, we've just been blessed with so much great media representation um, where we're, especially in television where you're allowed to play and you're allowed mm-hmm. to build a world. Um, I loved uh, the magicians. I don't know if you ever saw that series because mm-hmm. um, it started out as a really dark, gritty, real fantasy. But over time, because they had six or seven seasons, they were able to expand that world and have musical episodes. And like they were just able to explore the medium. So like that was a lot of fun. I loved Fringe. Um, and like I felt like that was another one that started out as like a procedural show that just kind of expanded, went way past the confines of what it started out to be. So I, I, I loved, you know, and Lost. I mean, mm-hmm. like they lost, you know, like, you can argue like the last season of Lost, whether it was problematic or not, but when it came, it changed what was happening in television. So like there's there's so much great storytelling that's been done over the last 15 to 20 years, um, both in you know in TV and in feature film. So from a uh I, I guess from a story bible uh perspective, how much of of the world of of, of White Ash existed before a comic ever existed before a page was ever drawn like how how much did you know about this world and and how much of it did you end up sort of discovering after later well it's 
so I'm I'm a planner. I'm I'm a hundred percent a planner. So um, while I, you know, when I started talking to Connor, when we were um, looking to, to to work together, I had the first arc loosely scripted out. Um, I also had, if it was a TV show, I had the first season. I had one to two page descriptions of every single episode for the first season of the TV show. I had, you know, like subsequent arcs figured out. So like, that's what I'm saying. Like when I look at things, it's like, what's the TV show? I knew what the feature film version of it was going to be. So, so yeah. So I had this gigantic document that basically said, this is what year one of white ash would be. This is what year two, this is where we're going with it. Um, which is a wonderful place as a writer to be able to create from, because if you know where you're going, if you have some broad, um, some, some parameters, then you can play and you can feel free to just like create new things. Um, and so like one of those new things was like in the original incarnation of um, White Ash 3, Galarian is introduced in the opening to it. And that was something that as I was writing issue three, I said, I feel like I need something with a little more zip to the beginning. And so I added that scene and that changed the entire scope of the White Ash franchise, just that one scene that didn't exist in the original document because you know the original document had a lot going to the past, but it didn't have the motivation behind you know why these things happened in the past. I just knew all these things happened. When she came in, I realized she was the motivation for so much of the stuff that happened in the past, um, which influenced where we were going in the future for the book. So so yeah, like I I knew the what, she gave me the why. And the why came in that scripting stage. Um, and then when Connor, when Connor came on board, like one of the first things I handed him was um, like a, an eight page document called The Secrets of White Ash, um, who these characters really were, who they're, what their histories were. Because I think, you know, some artists don't want that stuff. They don't want like, like just just tell me what to draw. Connor is one of those people who considers the backgrounds to the nth degree because he wants them to be a piece of the personality of the character. So for me, it was really important that he knew who these people were so he would know how to pose them, so he would know how to you know, do the, the acting that's integral to who they are when they're doing the scenes. So, um, so yeah, so, so there's a lot, but I still find you know, new storylines every time I sit down to write. Thinking about the setting uh, for a second, you know, this rural uh, mining town in Western Pennsylvania, you know, the, in the first issue of Steeler's Hat is a, is a very big part of it. You know, uh, I, I guess why why that uh, particular area? Was there a personal connection or, you know, were you kind of researching uh, location scouting, uh, as it were? <laughs> well, there, there was there was a couple of reasons. Um, one, I wanted coal mining to be part of it. Right? Mm -hmm. You know, like it's that's part of the reveal of the series. Who are these people who work in the coal mine? Right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that, that later on feels very oh, you're like, oh, of course those people are dwarves. But like, if you're looking for a setting that's real, like what would dwarves in modern day do? They would work in a mine, right? Mm -hmm. So like that, that's one of the places. And so then it was, what part of the country am I setting this, this in? Is it gonna be West Virginia? Is it gonna be um, you know, some part of uh, Pennsylvania? Um, and you know, for, so that was really the discussion in terms of, of, you know, of where, is it gonna be like one of those two places? But um, I was also, you know, it's about the white ash, which is the agrosil. And it was about, you know, where is that more prevalent? And that was in Pennsylvania over, um, you know, West Virginia. So like, so all these things played into it. But thematically, I also wanted to be playing with class. Um, you know, white ash, you know, where you have like the coal mining, the people who work in the mine, the people who own the mine. Um, and also that it's an immigrant tale. And often people who, who do jobs like working in coal mines at this point are now immigrants, right? Um, and White Ash is an immigrant story. It's, it's a melting pot of all these people who are, you know, like Alec, who's the, you know, the, the protagonist, he is a first generation American, right? I mean, like, like his, his family comes from someplace else. I mean, he might not know that, but, you know, he in a sense is an immigrant and he's going through that dilemma of, you know, what affects who I am, you know, like, no, no, I'm, 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 I'm an American, which I think, I think this is like, um, all of us when we're in our early twenties, 
I think we want to believe that nothing about who we are has anything to do with our parents, right? And we're like, forget it. Um, I'm going to be on my own person, my own man, my own woman. Um, and it doesn't matter what came before. What matters is who I am going forward. But then as we get older, we get a little bit more reflective and you're like, ah, well, maybe that one thing. Okay, maybe those two things. And, and I think, um, you know, this, a big part of Alex's arc in the first, um, in the, in the, the first volume is for him to figuring out how much of what came before is going to influence who he is and how much is, you know, is his own, you know, part of his own identity. So it's about, it's about that age when you're forming an identity and what influences who you're going to become. Now, do you have your, your own white ash, you know, your own, that town that you couldn't wait to get away from uh, as, yep. as you came of age? <laughs> I, I mean, a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up in a very, I mean, it wasn't a coal mining community. So, so take this with a grain. I grew up in a small beach community mm, okay. in uh, Southern Maine. Um, so it, it's like, as a uh, small towns go, it's about as nice as you can get. Uh, it was just on the, the coast of Maine, but it was about 7,000 people. So everybody knew everybody. Mm-hmm. And um, I think when, even when you're in, when you're in a, a gorgeous place like that um, and, and like, the town was actually called the Gunkwit, which means beautiful place by the sea in Abenaki Indian. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it was a gorgeous location. Um, you feel like there's got to be more than this, than these 7,000 people that I've grown up with. You know, I didn't need to have an ATM card to go into the bank. I didn't need to have ID. I could walk in and be like, hey, Karen, can I get $100 from my account? And Karen, who was a year ahead of me at the high school, would be like, here you go because everybody knew everybody so like when you come from a place that that is that small um i think you're always looking for what else is there uh so 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 for me that was my 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 journey was trying to figure out you know where else can i make my mark there's got to be something more um i think some people find it in in religion that's where they find fulfillment for me it was kind of that quest uh you know to go west to 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 los angeles to you know to college to you know, to, to try to find, you know, that next, that next level, that, that next ring that I want to sort of reach for. Um, but yeah, like, but it, going back to your question, exactly, very small town. Um, so I, I understand that mentality. Just have to, have you read much Stephen King? I, yeah, um, I, so, I, I have read some Stephen King, yes. Because Ogunquit is one of the towns where one of the main characters of The Stand is from. So that's one you said, I was like, ah, Freddie Goldsmith. So, so um, you're like, so my Stephen King story, I, I have two um, real quick, because I, I know tangents are discouraged here, but uh, no, they're so not. real quick. They're I was going to say I, quite I the opposite. So, so um, because like, uh, so when I saw Star Wars for the first time, which was back in the late 70s, when it mm-hmm. first came out into the movie theaters, uh, Stephen King had arranged for Star Wars to come first run to this theater called the Magic Lantern in Bridgeton, Maine. Mm-hmm. So I was there for the first night or two of Star Wars. And my dad always says, like, we were standing in line behind Stephen King to go <laughs> see Star Wars. Um, so, yes, yeah, so like that, that was. Um, and then, like, my second Stephen King story was his son, Joe Hill, uh, mm-hmm. went to college, same, same college as I did. Uh, he was a year ahead of me at school. And way back in the day when I was thinking I was also going to be an actor, I was doing some stand-up. And so we were doing a show where I was one of the people who was opening for Jon Stewart, you know, which oh, was, wow. uh, yeah, yeah. Like uh, not opening well for Jon Stewart, but I was there, you know, like it's always good for those people to bomb. So he looks really good. Um, but I was trying to do my act and you know, it, was, it was like in the cafeteria uh, and parents were rumbling and all of a sudden there's this sh- sharp voice was like, quiet down and let the kid do his act. And it was like Stephen King <laughs> telling people to, uh, cause it was parents weekend at the school and he was telling the other parents <laughs> to like, shut the F up. So, uh, I could bomb at my comedy act. Uh, so, <laughs> so I, I appreciate that. I appreciate, you know, him, you know, le- letting the audience go quiet so I could continue to keep them quiet. Um, <laughs> But, uh, yeah. Oh, uh, man. 
Yeah, you know, I Matt, when I saw the look of electricity in your eyes when you mentioned that one town in Maine, I'm like, I know where we're going. I know exactly <laughs> where we're going. I, I, I will well. say, are, are you guys uh, East Coast? You're East Coast, right? Uh, Jersey. New Jersey, yes. Yeah. Like, if you ever want to trip up, I mean, I know the Jersey Shore is hard to leave, um, but but a gunkwood is really like one of the, the jewels on the southern coast of Maine and just absolutely beautiful beaches. Uh, I got my copy of Spawn Number One on a little gift shop uh, on one of the beaches in a Gunquit, Maine. So, yeah, to bring that right back to comics. <laughs> there we go. Come to the beaches, stay for the Spawn back issues. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, I, I guess in in the time that you've been making White Ash and doing all, you know, what is something that has changed about the way that you you make comics in the last five years? Well, I, I think it's the the freedom to do whatever I want. Um, I, I'm very lucky that way because we have such a big fan base on Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. So if there's a story I want to tell, I can you know, tell it the way I want to tell it. I don't worry about hitting that 20 page count per issue. Uh, this is going to be, uh, you know, it's going to be eight, you know, uh, 28 pages, 32, 40-ish pages for this issue. I'm just going to do it because I know people will buy it. I have a place to sell it at that length. If I want to do a short story to tell like this piece of the tale, I can just go and do that. Um, so like, there's a freedom in storytelling that I have that the success of the franchise has given me that I think is, is incredible as a creative to be able to not have to worry about, you know, the economics of something. Um, because I, like, you know, going back to what I said earlier, I mean, so much of it is like, how are you going to pay for this? I know how I'm going to pay for it. I know people are going to buy it. So as long as we keep doing good work and I'm bringing in great artists, um, I just did this short with um, an artist, Anna Monrovia, who is unbelievable. Uh, I found, I saw her, she did some short for a Kickstarter. So I reached out to her. I was like, are you, are you interested? And she said, yeah. And she's like, I just need to finish up this thing I'm doing for 2000 AD. And um, like, it turns out like she has become one of their featured um artist right now and a bunch of stuff they're doing for judge dread and and, so, and like and i got her to do this piece for me and it it's just mind-blowing i was just so happy with how it turned out but it, you know like i said it's just the luxury to be able to reach out to artists and say do you want to do this thing and know that we have played uh, a network to distribute it and the financing to make it happen uh so on one of your other projects earlier this year you finished fulfillment on the first issue of how I Slipped My Way Through College and Other Tales of My Freshman Year, which is yes. a, a title, um, which you. is a thriller about uh, an escort service run from a college, uh, which is, at least as of issue one, not supernatural. Um, where did that one come from for you? Well, you know, as, as a writer, I like to uh, stretch the things that I'm doing. I don't want to be pigeonholed into just, and like, as, as big as the White Ash universe is, um, you know, I'm trying to do other things in different genres. I also have a side, big sci-fi book called The Game, um, which, you know, it's basically like, imagine if Sam from Quantum Leap jumped into the body of the Highlander, uh, mm. kind of vibe to it, uh, and didn't really know what was going on. It's about a guy who's turned 30 and uh, all of a sudden finds out people are telling him he's player number three in this game that's been played for a thousand years. And he's like, I have no idea what you're talking about, but he needs to figure it out to be able to survive. Uh, so like that, that's grounded. That's set in Boston. Um, it's grounded um, sci-fi. We're going to be coming out with issue two and three of that later this year. Um, but, you know, how I slept my way through college and other tales from freshman year, which, uh, you know, basically says what it is right in the title, which I think is helpful for people trying to, you know, get a grasp on it, is, uh, you know, me trying to do a little bit more grounded drama. Um, that is in the vein of the girlfriend experience meets a, uh, how to get away with murder. Um, so it's, it's a college drama about this young journalism student who uncovers uh, an escort ring at her school where some of her friends are actually high-end escorts who, um, you know, so like this high-end escorts rings. And so then she has to sort of figure out these people who now become her friends, does she want to expose them because she's got this incredible story? Or is there something more to it? Because I think we're in an age right now where um, the tropes of what sexuality is are constantly being explored in ways that they never have before. Um, so I kind of wanted to dive into that, into that conversation 
to really just sort of kind of stretch my muscles to see what I can. But it's also, it's a thriller. There's a missing girl. And, um, and I always write things with a little bit of humor. Um, so it, it was a way for me to write some grounded non-science fiction characters. And so the plan for that is either it's going to be a six issue or a 12 issue series, depending on response for that. Um, and so we're working on issue two and three of that right now as well. Um, answers my next question. So there we go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, like, I mean, like I, I'm looking to do, you know, I, I have a very large slate of titles that I'm working on right now, which, uh, again, it's, it's nice to be in the position where you can try things out. And if you take something to Kickstarter and it does well, and you have an audience for it, you know that you have the support there. And so for me, it's a way to, to see what the response is to things and how much I want to invest in a universe as well. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's at the end of, I think it's at the end of White Ash 7, you know, there's, there's a sort of promo in the back for like three different Kickstarters. There's the Glarian 2, there's How I Sucked My Way Through College 2. Uh, uh, I believe there was another installment of the Fun game. The game. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and so this was all, I think for, for 2022, probably maybe into 2023, but you know, what I wanted to know was, you know, do you do you take a break between campaigns or is it just sort of the constant churn of like campaign fulfillment, campaign fulfillment, you know, lather, rinse, repeat? It's, you know, it's, it's tough. Um, I think naturally I would like to do that. <laughs> I would just like to, <laughs> to, to keep going. Like I like to spend my time writing or, or putting new things, new content out there. Um, but you also have the realities of working with artists and they're not always um, the most deadline driven people. And so you, know, you can have aspirations to do X, Y, and Z in a certain time frame, and then the pages aren't done. So you can't do those things. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I, I, th I think the writing is the easiest part. Everything else is the, the stuff that takes work and takes time. Um, so, so yeah, I, there's a lot there and I do spend a lot of time looking at a big calendar on the wall and like, when is this piece going to slot in? When is this piece going to slot in? Um, and, and trying to build that production slate and that production schedule to, to get everything into motion. And I also have a big science fiction series I'm looking to get off the ground, which is really my like, uh, $300 million epic kind of, uh, science fiction franchise um but you know we'll see we'll see because again got to find a slot for it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now uh on top of making comics and and being a crowdfunding machine uh as we've talked about you know you're also the co-publisher of scout uh, yes. how did you uh how did you get involved with with that that outfit well that that sort of went back to the origins of white ash you know, when I was looking to figure out how to, to crowdfund it or go to the publisher, I looked at a bunch of publishers originally. And, and I, like, I looked at everybody because I wanted to know who was taking submissions, what kind of numbers were different companies doing. So, so I knew what Scout was um, or who Scout was. And then ultimately, I decided to go the Kickstarter route because I just wanted to make money and not go completely broke. Uh, versus, you know, coming out in the direct market. And, and over the next two years, I sort of kept track of where they were and watched Scout start growing as a company. And um, I had a friend who was doing this book called Tart. And that was also a Kickstarter book. And Scout had picked him up. And he's like, well, if you like my book, you'd also like my friend's book, White Ash. And so he handed it to them. And so then they came to me and they were like, hey, we would love to have you join our company and why Ashby, one of the big books that Scout's putting out. And so then you know, there was a long discussion about whether it would be a good fit. And I thought it would be a good place because especially at that time, Scout was very small where mm -hmm. I could start putting some direct market, um, getting, getting some direct market presence. And, uh, you know, and Scout also didn't have a problem with me continuing to kickstart. Um, so my thought was build the audience in the direct market make the money to make the book on Kickstarter and, you know, have the best of both worlds. And so then, you know, we started working together towards the distribution of White Ash. And I started asking them, well, how do you do this in terms of promotion? How do you do this with your mailing list? How do you do your retailer outreach? And it, it turns out there were some gaps 
that I always started to help them fill. And that sort of led to an ongoing conversation with me becoming more and more part of the company. And eventually when um, Jim Pruitt stepped down as publisher, they said, would you be interested in taking this on? And um, I was like, I don't know. What does that mean? Because <laughs> I always think like these terms like publisher can be um, you know, very ambiguous. Like, what do you do? How many hundred mm -hmm. hours a week do you expect me to work compared to you know, the other things that I'm doing? And you know, it, at the time it was like, well, we're looking at maybe splitting this job with you and David Byrne and the two of you can sort of parse up, you know, what you're good at. And um, so, you know, for me, that became doing a lot of the outreach to creators, helping, you know, work with them to make sure that their books would do well in the direct market space. David, who had a big retailer background, was doing a lot of outreach to the retailers and working on setting the print runs. So together, we were able to sort of build a, a really well-functioning relationship and and take it on without it becoming this thing that impacted the other things that I was doing creatively. So uh, at this point, I, I guess, uh, what, what makes a book a, a scout book? You know, what is sort of the, the niche that you're, or the space that you're trying to fill in the market? Well, I, I think it's a, it's a really great question. Um, and I think if you look at the direct market, Sometimes it's very hard to tell what the difference is between, say, an aftershock book and you know some of the books that Vault puts out, some of the books that Scout puts out, um, some of the books that Mad Cave puts out. I mean, some of those things have like there you could say you could point to a book and you say, well, th this company does this book, but there are a lot of them are just doing these creator own titles and they arrange all the different genres, right? Um, I think what Scout does at its best is it uses its name to scout right to to seek out new voices and to provide them a home and then to also find um older voices that maybe have been around once or two and give them a place to do their creator own book that they never had a chance and show them how to do to lead them to the direct market in a way that they haven't been led before so it's, it's about connecting creators with the direct market and, you know, and, and finding good fits for both of those people. So I think Scout has found as a company, it's found a lot of new talent. Um, but even things like Impossible Jones that Scout puts out, like Carl Kiesel, um, you know, who's an amazing creator. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, and Carl actually came to Scout because he and I knew each other through Kickstarter, right? And so like, like that, that's that kind of thing. Like I've been able to sort of use Kickstarter as a place that I go looking for creators and say, Hey, do you want a direct market presence? Mm -hmm. We can, we can find something that works for you. Um, and I think that's been a really nice sort of back and forth that we've had. Um, so, so, so that's, you know, I, I think at its best, it functions as a place to, to, to break new talent and to mm -hmm. bring place people new places. You know, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, veterans, I was going to bring up impossible Jones, but then, also, uh, I think this came out just a couple of weeks ago, but uh, look, if there's Matt again, you know, the <laughs> fact that you guys are bringing back Maze Agency from Mike W. Barr, I was like, oh, that is, that's a coup. That, yeah. That's an yeah. all time favorite of mine. Oh, uh, well, I, I know Mike is really excited about, uh, you know, bringing it back. And Brendan Nanine, who is uh, the CEO of Scout, has been talking to him for a while. So, so mm -hmm. we get a lot of people of that generation reaching out to us who don't necessarily have a place that's as readily available to them anymore, which is a little sad because, you know, like there's, there are people who had big hits in the eighties who can have big hits now, but it's about bringing that older generation to, to the direct market uh, in a way that makes sense for everyone. Mm -hmm. And then uh, just, you know, in terms of, of kind of newer stuff, one book that uh, I've enjoyed this year, we had him on the show actually not too long ago. Uh, Agent of World by uh, Dennis Camp and uh, Philia Bertukin. That's that's a banger. Yeah, it's it's also like um, unfortunately that book got a little delayed, um, and I think Dennis is an amazing writer, but he's one of those writers that's got so many ideas, um, and you see it like in the art the same way. It's like there's so much going on in the page. Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. uh, I think like when when one thing is wrong, it, you know you need to sort of take it back and think about it. And so like we were going to get it out a while ago, but I'm really glad it's coming out now. And uh, yeah, it's I mean, really great stuff. I also, I don't know if you haven't read By the Horns, if you like fantasy, that's a great book too. The art is beautiful in By the Horns. 
Um, so you know, some really good titles that Scout was putting out. Scout was the first publisher to sign a non-exclusive distribution agreement with Lunar after the company was basically created out of whole cloth to distribute DC stuff uh, uh, in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, since then, obviously, a few more publishers have signed on. But how has it been working for you with multiple distributors? And, you know, is there an example in the past year and a half where you were like, oh, thank God we had a plan B? Well, I, I, th- I think, yeah. I mean, like I, at the time, even when um, when Diamond shut down, the first thing that we did when we started self-distributing. Uh, so Scout has a headquarters where we're, you know, we, we ship a lot of things out anyway. There's a full-time staff that's mm-hmm. dedicated to, to shipping books. Um, so we, we, first we set up a direct to retailer channel because of the pandemic. And then, you know, we reached out to Lunar because I think this, this goes back to, you know, understanding the industry for too long. The industry has been done. Things have been done in a certain way. And like, if you, if you're a publisher and you're dealing with diamond, like their website is something that looks like it's one of those old GeoCities websites that <laughs> of like, there's like two or three or 500 patches that have been put onto it to try to make it functional with today's internet. And so like everything that they're, they are doing um, feels that way. Uh, Lunar came in and kind of started build, building their operations from the ground up. So it's really nice to be able to, to work with um, a distributor that operates that way. But mm-hmm. Diamond also has, has the institutional knowledge. So it's great to have that. So I, I always, always advocate this to creators is try to be everywhere you can be. You know, don't don't get bogged down. Um, and I think Scout has been very forward thinking about that. Um, and we're always looking for new distribution deals as a company. Uh, penultimate question. What are you reading right now? Oh, oh what am I reading right now? Um, I, I know what my wife would like me reading right now. <laughs> she, she wants me to get back into um, Wheel of Time, especially with the uh, the Amazon. She's like, she's like, we can be reading buddies. We can sit on the couch. You can have your Wheel of Time. I'll read volume 10. You can finish volume one. Um, and so like, so she would really like me to be um, reading that right now. I, I'll be honest, like uh, it is hard for me to... Um, to dole out time to read more than like a 10 page section of things. Like it's, sure. it's a little sad because like I go through a lot of submissions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I read a lot of submissions. Um, you know, I have a big stack of my friend's books that I have to get to, to read. Like those, those are first priority. Um, mm-hmm. Like Pat Shand. I don't know if you guys know Pat Shand, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, but he's, he's a good friend of mine. I actually did a backup story in one of his destiny, New York volumes. Um, and so I have read volumes one, two, three, and four, but he just writes too much. Like, 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 like it's all great, but like, I think I have volume five and six I need to catch up on. So that's on my nightstand to read next. Um, so, so, you know, like I, I, I would say like, there's a lot of just sort of catching up with my friend's work. And mm-hmm. then, you know, like there's the, and then when you get a chance to go to the comic shop, I try to read the new number ones that are coming out to find uh, new creators. Um, I'm constantly looking at other Kickstarters for for artists. Um, so uh, yeah, so, so I mean, again, it's um, I I just recently was reading a lot of Judge Dredd uh, <laughs> to check out Anna to see mm-hmm. whether she would be a good fit, and I was like, oh my goodness, I I I hit the jackpot here. It's fantastic. Well, Charlie, uh, this has been a fantastic hour. Uh, final question: As we release you back into the world, how can people follow you online and keep on uh, keep in, keep up on uh, White Ash, Glarian, and everything else that you have going on? Well, I'd say the, the easiest place to find me is on Twitter. I'm at Charles Stickney because uh, whoever Charlie Stickney is, they uh, <laughs> they have it locked down, and I couldn't couldn't quite get it away from them. Um, but so find find me there. You can follow at White Ash Comic on Instagram. And uh, if you go to White Ash Comic, I think we can sign up for our mailing list to know what else is coming out. Future. Excellent. Charlie, thank you very much for coming on the show. Of course. Thank you so much for having me, guys. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A is part of Comics XF, where you can find this podcast along with our sister podcast, Battle of the Atom, Chris's on Infinite Earths, and Bat Chat with Matt and Will, co-hosted by Matt Lazowitz and our bud Will Nevin. Uh, P.S. Matt and Will, Sorry I made you read White Knight again. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, 
SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a free comic in the mail for my collection. A $2 donation gets you a slot in the ComicsXF staff picks, a $3 donation gets you access to our new bonus podcast, Our Son Pete, a deep dive into the appearances of British mutant super spy Pete Wisdom, and a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis from the Match Club podcast, Robert Secundus from ComicsXF.com, Carla Pacheco from Marvel Spider-Woman series, Kat Purcell from ComicsXF, Liz Large from ComicsXF, Will Nevin from ComicsXF, and Asimov Fangirl, a.k.a. The Loyalist Content Consumer. You can follow WMQ&A on Twitter at WMQComics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLast1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF. And until next week, remember, the Forceworks character Sentry was apparently part of Combo Man. WMQA. WMQA.